0: Welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation, heard at americascannabisconversation.com. We're part of the W420 Radio Network, and each week we provide you with information, education, and insight into the exploding medical and recreational cannabis industry. W420radionetwork.com. Time now for the lowdown on another high time experience. Here's 420 lifestyle correspondent Rich Walkoff.
1: You never know who you're going to run into at the Emerald Cup here in Santa Rosa, California. It's Bree and Rose tag teaming it from Colorado to California because it is all about being in compliance now that California has become maybe the most highly regulated California cultivating state and colorado wrote the book on it so Bree, let's start with you you're with a company that consults and is probably guiding a lot of companies in california on compliance because that is the big operative word now
2: yeah absolutely so we build compliance operations infrastructure where we come in and do all of the shortcuts of the labor costs and the other nuances that you probably don't know coming into a compliance market So we will come in and do an assessment, we'll identify any gaps, and then we'll also help build that infrastructure and any training on top of that to make you sustainable, actually without us in the long term, and more importantly, skip all these labor costs that you have to go through and trial and error and also compliance risk, and just not have those direct answers and know how other mature markets have handled these compliance
1: aspects. And Rose, first thing you said to me is from seed to sale. So just expound upon that because it is tracked, the cannabis product is tracked from its inception.
3: It sure is. And uh, the challenges there come come, uh, about when you're talking about every step of the way, something has to be tracked. So for cultivation, it's extremely difficult to track every waste that comes off a large plant. Um, especially when you're talking about one farmer on that farm, or if you're talking about manufacturing and all of the waste that they're, you know, um, accruing and whatnot, and how they're supposed to track getting rid of that waste. Um, pretty much every step uh, in in the supply chain has some issues with holes in the tracking trace um, that could be easily fixed by the regulation.
1: Okay, now if I purchase a seed, it's going to be tagged. If I grow a plant and it produces seeds, it's gonna be tagged. How does that work?
2: Yeah, so essentially by the time that is a seed, usually you collect seeds at harvest most time, or other times like before harvest. And let's say I'm collecting all of those seeds, I would put a tag on those seeds and then those seeds have to be transferred to a distribution license and then that distribution license to the retailer and then finally to the consumer. And between there, like if it isn't seeds, you have testing. If you're talking about trim all the way to an edible, there's going to be different steps from crude oil to distillate to your first batch of uh, manufactured goods to your final form of production. So there's just so many steps that you have to do to make sure that you're tracking every single bit. Yeah,
1: this is pretty Cumbersome, and then maybe that's why the black market continues to maybe rule the day because with all the permits, the costs, and you're talking about the tracking of seed to sale, that's pretty cumbersome, not only bureaucratically but financially.
3: It sure is. And especially like splitting up the license structure, it actually makes it more difficult for people to be in house cultivator to the retail. So, you know, because you have to be a distributor to test your product, because you have to have a nursery license to sell your seeds, just makes it a lot harder to be able to afford these things, you know, and they have been doing it forever, so now that they have to pay to play, it's just making it more difficult.
1: Now, did California replicate Colorado's plan, or did they make it more cumbersome?
3: They did not. I mean, it depends on what you're talking about, yeah. but um, I think the, the structure of the licensing is where it's most different. Um, And they were trying to avoid those, like, larger conglomerates of, you know, people coming in and taking over the industry, but really what they're doing is hurting the small farms and hurting the smaller manufacturing and stuff because they need to
2: accrue all these licenses to keep up with the big guys. Yep. One thing they did do well is that we have one supply chain. So, like, uh, Colorado, which actually in 2020 we're switching to one supply chain. Massachusetts and Michigan are actually doing it incorrect because they have two supply chains internally. They have a medical inventory and they have an adult use inventory. At least California, for the most part, the majority of products are all funneled through one supply chain, and the time of purchase is what determines a consumer, an adult use, or a medical, which makes inventory management significantly more easier for everyone else to that point at retail.
1: So now you guys are consultants, and you're probably helping the little guy more than the big guy because they already... Have a leg up, right?
3: Yeah, I mean we're helping all over across the board because you know if you're helping the small guy in the end you are helping the big guy, you know because they the big guys so in some ways are supporting some of the smaller people um, by you know helping get the name out and helping spread the brand. But all in all, we're helping anyone that needs it.
2: Yep, and those small guys are like pretty much setting up the big guys for success. So they're like, okay, I have my stuff internally structured because I hired an outside consultant to help me, and so now I just made everything easier for the big guys if I were to sell them my product or help them with distribution or packaging and all of
1: that. You know, some cynics would say this is by design. All this rigmarole bureaucracy and challenging legal regulations are making it harder for the small grower and cultivator to keep up with the major agribusiness corporations that are going to, you know, power play though yeah
3: yeah great and uh, it's all about communication with the regulators you know the more that they're willing to open up and listen the better it's going to be and um, I just spoke to someone with the CDFA and she was really open to hearing out more consultants because she knows that we hear it all from all walks of the supply chain um, you know we're, we're a really good funnel for that and so if you're using um, like social groups like HCGA or something like that to communicate maybe um, you know consultants can be part of
1: that too. Okay, you, yeah. you, you threw some acronyms at it. CDFA, is that a California Department of Farming? Uh,
3: Food and Agriculture. Food and ag- yep. Agriculture. Yeah, so they overlook all cultivation um, regulations, so they're really the ones that can change stuff on the cultivation level. Um, and then the HCGA is the Humboldt County Growers Alliance, um, who has about I, can't, I, don't, I don't know how many farms, but
1: they, they speak for many farms with one voice. Okay. So did Colorado really write the script and it would be best if other states followed to make it more equitable?
2: I mean, there's always room for improvement. I mean, we're all, it's in the beginning of an industry. So I think that that's what's so beautiful about this is that we can keep on adapting and keep learning. So I appreciate other markets taking what we've, developed and tweaking it to be their own, like this whole supply chain is a great example. Um, How the equity program is super important in California, we don't have an equity program in Colorado, I think that's extremely important. So I love seeing them take things and change it. But I do think from a regulatory standpoint, we do have a pretty solid infrastructure. I mean, Denver, where we come from specifically in Colorado, they say there's more dispensaries than Starbucks in our county, so we're heavily regulated. And I think there's aspects as to that can be applied to other states, like the traceability uh, software. It doesn't matter which software it is. At least, like you're tracking everything. So, if other states can do it, yes, California should be able to do it too. But I mean, it is the fifth, sixth largest uh, economy in the world. Like we have such high volume and velocity here, it is a good challenge. And
3: Brie and I always talk about like we're surprised that these other states aren't jumping off from a Colorado point. You know, using what we've already learned in the past 10 years of working through stuff, we're actually surprised that some states um, are just reinventing the wheel, but it's already been a bit.
1: Yeah, why why do you think that is?
3: Maybe because they think they can do it better, or they don't want to take the time to learn what we put into place, which is just ridiculous, because they're going to go through the same things that we did, and you know, it just would be easier to you know, look at history, and history repeats itself, then why not look at the state that started
1: it? Right. If somebody paved the way, don't ignore the progress that they've made. Now, what about policing and monitoring and, uh, you know, keeping track? Because that may be a challenge in and of itself with the enormous grows that are all over the state of California and elsewhere.
3: Yeah, so um, in Colorado we had a few years where it was like the learning process for the regulators. And then we saw more and more involvement in the regulators um, coming to audit these grows. So like currently in California, we're still in the learning state. You know, the regulators are still learning, they're still thinking of ways to audit. Um, especially cultivators um, and the cultivators are thinking okay we have a couple more years to get away with stuff so I think that they're really going to freak out once they actually have that you know, that regulator at their door and um, it's just it's the same process they're going to come and I think uh, so the, the CDFA has hired some uh, auditors to look at metrics specifically in California um, and it's just a matter of time before they find those outliers
2: they just need the data data's power and so now because we do have that traceability software in, like, we have to, we get that data now. And so they'll be able to understand outdoor versus mixed life versus indoor and what the average yields are. Like, yes, there's a whole spectrum there, but um, they'll be able to find what that happy medium is and who those outliers are and where enforcement potentially Okay,
1: we, we may know seed to sale, but do we know what happened in the interim? Do we know what chemicals, if any, were used that shouldn't have been used? What abnormalities may have been involved in the
2: growth. She's the testing it.
1: How about the lab testing? Because that's key. I mean, people get a smoke. They say, oh, I love that flower. This is a great strain but you don't know necessarily how it got there, or do you?
3: Um, Currently now with track and trace, you do. Um, And amendments, uh, and they do not need to be tracked at at this moment, but they will in the future. Um, In Colorado, we have to track everything that touches that plant, Um, and then where testing comes in, it's actually a lot more stringent in California, Um, and I really enjoy the California testing model more because the lab actually comes out and pulls those samples, whereas in Colorado, you self-pull the samples so say I am the dispensary, I'm pulling my own samples to send to the lab. Um, that can get a little interesting. Um, so I really enjoy the California model of, you know, the lab comes out and make sure that they're pulling an accurate
1: sample. Right, yeah. instead of the fox guarding the chicken coop.
2: Yep,
3: because
1: exactly. if I'm a grower and I want to cut corners, I'm going to tell you everything I did was up and up, yep. and it may not be the truth. So California's Regulations are more stringent.
3: Yes, and yeah. currently we're not tracking that in the track and trace system, but there is an area to do that within metric. Um, so I can just see in the next couple years that being becoming mandated.
2: Yeah, definitely. And one thing I think we do need more improvement on is more consumer-facing tra- uh, transparency. Like uh, in Mendocino and Humboldt and Trinity, there used to be a different traceability platform in those counties called How Origin or a SICPA. And that I really liked because it was actually consumer facing that there was a label on the packaging where you could see the actual entire entire supply chain until you received that product as a consumer. Metric, Franwell's Metric, which is the state traceability platform that we're using now, does not have that feature as a consumer. So I definitely think that's something that needs to be expanded on to have that transparency as a consumer that I can see every single step of the way.
1: Well, as as every consumer would want to know, what am I ingesting? Exactly. What am I eating, what am I vaping, what am I smoking, and is it as advertised?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's all education, like you're saying, so, you know, having that small farmer that never adds anything to the soil, having that communicated to the consumer on a a level that is, like, health and safety is, you know, the next step, and we're definitely in that right now, we're, you know, we're veering away from, you know, the big cartridge scare and stuff like that. I think people are more willing to educate themselves on where their product is
1: coming from. Yeah. yeah, Speaking about the vape cartridge scare, am I correct in saying it's more of the Chinese knockoff products that are not regulated and not domestically monitored here in the States, or are there scared. other components or aspects to it
2: there are like some so one thing is um like we're seeing other states which transition from just terpenes to cannabis derived terpenes because when you have uh natural terpenes sometimes those are actually cut with vitamin e acetate so and that's they, the dangerous and stuff. that's the dangerous stuff so um i don't think it's nearly as frequent as um other markets or other international players or anything like that but uh, there's definitely other scares, and I'm, i I kind of appreciate this vape crisis because it's actually bringing to light how testing works and how it's important as a consumer to know what you're putting into your body. And goes back to sun-grown cannabis and why you should be using uh, different products and things from farms that are truly natural and as organic as we can say as organic. And it's really important because this is truly medicine, and people are using it truly as medicine and you can't be putting more toxins in
1: the body. So do you think we're safe in consuming cannabis that has that seal from the state of California or Colorado or other states that authenticate its organic nature?
3: Absolutely. So vaping
1: is not an issue?
3: Well, if it's been lab tested and you're buying it from a legal retail shop, you have a higher chance of surviving yes <laughs>
1: that's not a ringing endorsement <laughs> a higher chance of survival i want to hear you say but, you're you safe
3: know, the one thing that brie and i talk about is like you know there's going to be traceability from from where those terpenes came from from where those cartridges came from you know it's going to be more of yeah the hardware um it's going to be you know more tracking every component of that product so I think we'll see that. As it
1: should be, right? I mean, this is this is a win-win. It's a win for the grower. It's a win for the consumer. I mean, I want to know what I'm putting in my body like everyone else, especially with the scares that have become all too prevalent. Ladies, again, you're a consulting company and how consumers or interested cultivators would, would be able to reach you
3: yeah you know we help the whole supply chain um so we are rocky mountain cannabis consulting you can find us on instagram um, instagram twitter and, yeah, facebook twitter, facebook and our uh, our uh, <laughs> our website <laughs> is rmcc.io if you guys want to check
2: us out or rocky mountain cannabis consulting.com
3: mm-hmm. either that one sounds great. This there. <laughs> well
1: i feel better and safer after having talked to you awesome. about the monitoring of whatever we're ingesting in the cannabis side. We're at the Emerald Cup. Rich Walcott from W420 Radio Network.
0: Are you interested in learning more about cannabis? Have you thought about starting your own cannabis business but don't know how? If so, we invite you to join the Cannabis Conversation with other people like you who are looking at the exciting opportunities in this exploding business. Listen to America's Cannabis Conversation. You'll hear from industry experts and get insights into the cannabis industry. For archived shows and for more information, log on to americascannabisconversation.com. It's time for Women in Cannabis on America's Cannabis Conversation, part of the W420 Radio Network. Didn't you get the memo? Here's Chase Roberts.
4: Welcome back to the conversation. This is Chase Roberts, woman in Canvas correspondent for the W420 radio network. It is a pleasure to introduce Trailblazer Jennifer Lujan. She was the founder and CEO of Wheat for Good and serves on its board, has been featured in Forbes, was named by the San Francisco Business Times as one of the most influential women in Bay Area business 2020. She is currently the senior director of social impact at Ease. California's largest, one of the original, and a leading online cannabis marketplace and delivery service. It connects adult consumers with licensed dispensaries and products. Jennifer, welcome. Thanks for being here. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Let's start at the very beginning. How did your childhood in Texas guide you on the path you're on? Um,
5: Well, you know, I grew up uh, in El Paso, Texas. So really just minutes away um, from Ciudad Juarez in Mexico. Um, And having grown up there my whole life, all of my parents and their families and my grandparents all being raised in El Paso, Texas. um, It was it was almost feeling like you were very much in Mexico, <laughs> but um, but because of border, it was there was that text. You got a little bit of that Texas culture as well. Um, but yeah, growing up, my entire life, uh, you know, it wasn't unusual for many of my friends, uh, family members, or um, my neighbors to be working in the Uh, in the industry, not the cannabis industry. I mean, I mean, I guess you could say it was cannabis, but it's very much illegal. Um, You know, crossing over from Mexico into Texas was very much a common thing. Um, So it wasn't unusual for, for us to, to grow up around that.
4: You then went on, you went to school and I read that when you were at school, you really realized in Texas, you were part of a majority and, when you went to school you felt a little marginalized and i know those are the communities you serve with your social impact but before you got to where you're at right now you had started weed for good um can you tell me a little bit about what was the impetus for that and what did it do exactly i know you still you're on the board still correct
5: Correct. Um, Yeah, we're still like, we've been transitioning actually out of um, just weed for good. um, And that is more just for legal implications, just because of how the adult use um, bill turned out. um, And my capacity really to focus more specifically on what I'm doing through momentum and ease. Um, But yeah, we've uh, turned a lot of our support over to Dear Cannabis, which is another Amazing compassionate care organization, very similar. Um, And we've been running a lot of our compassionate care efforts through the EASE uh, platform now.
4: Amazing. Um, And for the people, I would say the majority of our listeners know what EASE is, but can you go into a little more detail about EASE and its mission?
5: Yeah. So, Ease um, is one of the most trusted, vertically integrated cannabis marketplaces um, operating in California and soon to be launching in Michigan. Um, We've been in operation since 2014, and we've completed about 7.6 7.6 million deliveries. That's a lot of <laughs> weed That's deliveries, impressive. as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, um, and we've uh, had about 190 million transaction values over the past 12 months. Um, you know, part of this is like really working not just to provide safe and trusted products to consumers, but also to educate them as well um, about cannabis and, and what works for them. Um, part of another area and the work that I do in the real in, in social impact is really making sure that we're empowering these like small businesses. So as you can imagine, we carry over a hundred brands and yeah. 600 individual products on our menu. Wow. Um, we're nationally recognized leader in promoting social equity licenses, Absolutely. um, and just through that, we've sold over 7.7 million in products of just social equity um, on the Ease platform. So really, that's just like really more making sure that we're um, empowering these folks. We're, we're making sure that we're um, giving giving them, like creating success for
4: them and putting real money in their hands. You created the Momentum Program in 2019. So what does that entail and what does that do for communities?
5: Yeah, so in um, 2019, I'll kind of take actually a step back and and kind of this kind of goes back to one of your first questions about how I sort of got into the industry and this kind of all kind of relates to to this. So um, when I got into the industry, I was actually uh, working at Lyft. Um, and I was running their sort of social impact, uh, CSR arm that was early lift days. Um, and my partner at the time, uh, was working in very much of the illicit market, um, in San Francisco, um, and then started to transition into getting adult use medical permits, um, for cultivation. And when that transition started to happen, um, I it really opened my eyes um, just from the medical side of cannabis, about who were the patients that really needed this, um, and who who was getting it and, and who was struggling to not get it. Um, and so at that point, I start to volunteer my time um, into really figuring these things out, it, you know, the way that we looked at cannabis was very different in the way that we've been taught about, you know, the war on drugs and the dare program and all of these things and these programs that basically said, this is bad for you. And then on the other hand, I'm actually seeing how much this is really, really helping people. Yeah. Um, and then you have communities who are serving this, medicine and growing this yet are being thrown in jail. So there was just a lot of different things that really bothered me. A lot of injustice in the industry. A lot of injustice in the industry from so many different angles. Marginalized social equity, health equity, um, accessibility, um, you know, part even to our opiate issues. Like all of these things were just, you know, really um, negatively impacting us. And so I, uh, at that point, started working with some veterans um, and started to do work on compassionate care. Um, I left Lyft and I started doing that. And I, I, uh, that was the birth of Weed for Good. Um, And I worked to give free medicine uh, to patients, specifically people who were terminally ill, kind of end of life um, and give free medicine to them, um, right there, uh, you know, either through the hospital or at hospice. Um, now granted then, as I mentioned, adult use changed a lot of the uh, legalities for us to be able to, um, operate in that way. Um, and you couldn't just give free weed out (laughs) anymore. Uh, that just, you know, and it's, it's, um, you look back on it and it's kind of silly that we have so many different intricacies in the, in the regulations with this, um, but it didn't al- allow for these compassionate care programs to exist. Um, during that time, um, I was recruited through um, th- through EASE to basically create their social impact arm and really look at this from a larger scale, um, not just from the patient lens, but to my point, you know, to what I was mentioning before, also from the social equity standpoint, um, and how do we create solutions to these issues and these problems um, that we've been facing for decades? So, uh, and, and how do we as like, you know, a, a company that is been operating for a while and larger have responsibility um, to these communities and to these patients? Um,
4: responsibility and so necessary. Yeah. You've been yeah. at East for almost four years now. But you, you really are the one creating these programs that now exist and, um, Momentum, you did give out $50,000 grants to companies that qualified. And there was 130 applications originally that you guys filled.
5: Yeah. For 2019, um, you know, that was the launch of momentum. And again, this was to really sort of look at how we can take some of these people who are social equity license holders, or just in general, like minority owned businesses, underrepresented in the industry, um, support them, not just through education, knowledge share, but also through um, um, financial, through a financial lens, um, and really giving them, again, this is not like, you know, it's an investment, but we're not taking equity. So it's basically, we're just, we're giving these grants. Um, And the first year we had over 130 applications. And then for the second class, um, we basically almost doubled the amount of applications. Um, And (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot of, it was very, and very challenging. Like there were really, really good, solid applications. We narrow it down to 10. Oh yeah, um, yeah Are you, you know, so, up
4: based on like yearly, if you guys get more and more applicants, is that something you're gonna maybe realign or it's it's gonna stay at 10?
5: Yeah, we well, you know um, it's good. For now, we've been very comfortable with 10 um, just because we really want to give every company the attention. Um, and you know, oh. it goes beyond just a class for us. Like we work with these companies throughout the year and even the first two classes, we're still working with them. You know, our goals are to make sure that it's not just, you know, us giving that through the program and, you know, closing the door on that relationship. It's, we really want to have sustained success for them. Um, and for them to be successful. And we know, understand that businesses, it you know, especially a small business in this industry. Yeah. It takes time. Yeah.
4: Well, you're offering the support that's so needed. Um, Ease announced some exciting news that there's going to be an acquirement of another company, which will therefore put you in maybe three to four other states. Is this a, a program that you are going to expand to those states when that happens? Yeah, so
5: actually um, this past year, this past class, we actually did um, expand it beyond California and we we made it a national program. Um, So uh, for the second cohort, we had um, not just businesses from California, but we also were um, had some more on the East Coast, so Michigan, New Jersey, and New York were represented in Momentum Cohort Two. Very um, exciting. Yeah, really exciting, and um, yeah, we, we look forward to expansion into these other states.
4: Seems like Ease is going to take over the nation. <laughs> um, it's you know, California. Correct. We. I'm sorry. We're, yeah, we're everywhere
5: in California. Yeah, we are. Mm-hmm. And um, I think for us, we we do a really, really fantastic job of a very well curated menu. Um, again, you know, a lot of these uh, we pride ourselves on making sure that our items are um, the best of the best um, in the products that we sell. So being able to go into these uh, different states that have consumers who are looking for that you know and looking for a variety of products um, is something we want to give them access to
4: absolutely and are you active with the ease insight program um,
5: I have um, I'm not directly um, associated with our um, our our data are you talking about our data insight yeah. reports Can you tell a yeah. little
4: to our listeners about what that is because that's amazing too you're, you're Ease is also tracking information as you go along.
5: Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, as you can imagine, um, because, you know, we're very much also very technology based, um, we've been able to do and see consumer trends um, through our sales. And um, we're also constantly seeing like what the whole industry and the the upswing and, and how how people are purchasing. Um, so yeah, every year we do an Ease Insights report um, that really focuses on uh, the different marketing trends of cannabis. Like, how many women are purchasing cannabis product products? Like, what type of products are they purchasing? More than. Ever,
4: um, and it's funny, because yeah. Street, you know, it's been quoted in several different sources of the rate of women in the industry versus the industry as a whole and the numbers, it's not a fair playing field at this point.
5: Yeah. It's always interesting. You know, we always get to see like, um, you know, again, for, for how people are choosing to even be conscious consumers, you know, by shopping on our um, social equity uh, carousel. Um, so we see those things. Uh, it very much is not just something that helps direct ease, but it's helped many um, different businesses throughout the industry. Um, and it helps a lot of even just people who are starting their uh, business on what that looks like, you know, like we'll see the edibles, um, you know, during 2020 did really well. Um, pre-rolls always seem to be a very, uh, a top seller. So, um, yeah, very good, dense, uh, really good information and data.
4: Yeah. I'm going to suggest to our listeners to go to their website and read those papers are available online. Uh, it's a good resource. A lot of. Ins- interesting information. Um, do you have any new programs in development right now?
5: Um, for, so for social impact, um, like I mentioned, we'll be opening up, um, another cohort and that will be announced, um, later in October. Um, so we'll be, uh, opening applications for the third, third cohort. Um, we also have some really good, um, another good program that I can't talk about too much right now, but that will be maybe um, a launching. For- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we'll be launching that later this month. And again, this kind of goes, uh, ducktails off of. Um, the, the, you know, patients and access to cannabis, okay. um, specifically, you know, those who are suffering and, and how we give access to those patients. Um, so we created, um, a program that will really support that. So more, more to come on that in, later this month.
4: You know, you've accomplished a lot through your career in your advocacy work, your social impact work. Is there anything that stands out to you as being just a really big positive change that you feel you directly played a huge part. Um, and it could be any of your career, uh, not just ease, but y- you've really had, you've built a long illustrious career on making a good positive difference. So hats off to you firstly for that, but is there Thank anything you. that stands out to you as far as that goes where it's just.
5: Yeah. So I think for me, you know, again, I've, I've been, I've always early on, um, since college have uh, really actually since high school, but, um, have really focused on a lot of, you know, marginalized communities and specifically minorities, you know, whether it's like women, you know, our black and brown communities, LGBTQ. Um, and I saw that, you know, growing up, um, And that was, you know, part of the community that I was raised in Um, and throughout my career, whether it was in politics, working on the Hill in DC, um, working in different areas of like, you know, tech, I've worked for, you know, done a lot of corporate uh, social responsibility. There's always been this focus on really trying to support the needs of these communities and Um, and, and also what, it's not just necessarily about giving a check. It's about, it's, it goes well beyond giving a check and how, and I think the thing that I really pride myself in the work that I've been able to do in my career, um, you know, I've worked in a lot of, you know, disruptive industries, you know, whether it was ride sharing or now cannabis, um, and in these startups, so. Really looking at the way of how these companies function as a business to be doing good, you know, and it's not just about, like, again, giving a checkout, it's not just a philanthropy, it's so so much more than that.
4: And so important the guidance, the time, the investment. And companies, I think, are re gearing to really have this as a priority. Have you noticed that with companies? This absolutely. Yeah, I feel absolutely now. Maybe I feel like it's been propelling and getting bigger and bigger, or they're becoming more conscious of it. But it's like I said, it's thanks to people like you who really have it, you know, put it on the table, make it happen. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. I want to thank you for being here. And for our listeners, if you missed any of this great interview with Jennifer Lujan, you can go to W420RadioNetwork.com and visit our archive section. And we'll be right back.
0: You're listening to America's Cannabis Conversation on W420RadioNetwork.com. America's newest and fastest-growing cannabis-focused radio network is expanding across the country and looking to add to our sales and marketing team. America's Cannabis Conversation offers listeners insight and information on the exploding world of cannabis. It also gives advertisers the opportunity to reach a hyper-targeted audience, literally neighborhood by neighborhood, in markets all across the country. We're looking for a few motivated individuals that want to essentially run their own local business. To learn more about this exciting opportunity or to apply, visit americascannabisconversation.com. dot Welcome
6: back to the conversation, and joining us today is Ryan Douglas who was a master grower of Tweed Incorporated, and he's just recently published a new book, From Seeds to Success, How to Launch a Great Cannabis Cultivation Business in Record Time. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We haven't done a lot about – we've done some shows on growing. Ryan, what makes you a master grower?
7: Well, it it all comes down to experience, really. That's a a term that's thrown around quite a bit in the cannabis industry. But really, my background and training is in traditional horticulture. So in that world, Mm -hmm. uh, we call that position a a production manager or a head grower. But uh, a a master grower is is simply that person inside of a cultivation business that is ultimately responsible for the cultivation program. So uh, in my case, really... Um, I have about two decades of experience in commercial plant production. So uh, the last few years, it's certainly been cannabis, but prior to that, um, I was growing ornamental crops and edible crops in, in commercial greenhouses across the U.S.
6: Wow. So what are you doing now besides finish, uh, writing your book? So I'm a cultivation consultant,
7: so I work with companies internationally that have recently been licensed, and they're looking to launch production. So over the last four years or so, I've worked with a dozen companies uh, in Canada, the U.S., Puerto Rico, and Colombia, and typically the situation is the same. Uh, These companies have um, connections, and they're well-funded, and they end up getting these production licenses, but none of the, uh, the management really are from the agricultural world, so they need someone to show them how to launch and execute a new cannabis cultivation business.
6: And so that's where Ryan Douglas Cultivation LLC comes in play.
7: Exactly. So essentially I help Mm -hmm. new newly licensed companies uh, come to market quickly, and I help them spend less money getting there.
6: Let me ask you a question kind of on point, but maybe not. And and if you're not prepared to answer the question, that's fine. Uh, uh, We don't discuss questions in advance. It's a conversation, and we see where things take us. Um, Of course the united nations last week passed a resolution uh number five i guess it was called in in vienna that uh, dramatically changed the uh, illegal nature of cannabis on a global basis and and many of the people that i've talked to says that europe uh while having an illicit market has no real medical market and that this change will allow many of the european nations To put their toe in the water and develop a a medical practice and it may be a long long time before we get to recreational in Europe like we are in the United States do you see that and does it create opportunities for you to expand your growing consulting business uh, in Europe
7: well absolutely so I work anywhere in the world uh, that cannabis is legal so uh, most countries and, in fact, most states here in the U.S. usually um, start with a um, medical cannabis program. And depending on how that goes, typically then they implement a recreational program. So, you know, if, if, if the European Union is, is looking at um, working with cannabis first medicinally, you know, I'm, I'm all for that. I support that. And absolutely, I would be open to the opportunity to help some of these countries uh, launch their cannabis production programs for the
6: very first time. I have uh, plenty of experience
7: doing that, and it's exactly exactly my specialty, my line of work.
6: Well, um, the test may not have mentioned to you, but about 10% of our audience c- comes from international, from Europe, Asia, South South Africa. Outstanding, excellent. We're, tr- we're trying to grow, are trying to grow our international business because we we think, and you may disagree, but or you may agree. The rest of the world is quite a bit behind the United States.
7: True, true. So the only benefit there is they can really learn from the, the mistakes and the successes that we've had in Canada, in the U.S., in um, a couple other countries that have kind of stuck their nose out there and gave it a shot for the first time. But, you know, from my perspective, I think it's inevitable. I think that the momentum can't be stopped now. Uh, I think eventually the majority of the world is going to turn that way and that they're going to legalize cannabis for some use in some manner. And it's just a question of time. It's not a question of whether they'll do it or not. But they do have the advantage of studying in depth what happened in Canada, which I was part of. And then what we've done here, somewhat haphazard in the U.S. because it's state to state. But um, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm I'm confident that, that the world is heading towards cannabis legalization in the very near future.
6: I have some people uh, I've done a lot of interview in the almost year and a half we've been on the air and uh, I've talked to a lot of people who look at the cannabis space and if you ask them today, what they thought it would be dramatically different than what they thought 18 months ago, 18 months ago, they saw a rollout of a robust um, dispensary business model. And now it appears that because of the pandemic, uh, pickup or delivery looks like the largest component of growth going forward in the cannabis space. Uh, the reluctance of people to want to go out and go shopping, uh, the knowledge level increasing, the number of doctors who, uh, who, um, who are involved in the practice of rec- making recommendations, and, and as you pointed out, more and more states. Um, we're, we're in a, a, a really interesting time uh, in the cannabis space and I'm curious what you think about what I just said
7: well so 18 months ago um,
6: I don't think I would
7: have been as as um, hopeful as I am today um, as a result of covid um, not only do we see the changes more from kind of a storefront to a drive-through or pickup model but I think we've also increased the chances of states legalizing cannabis either for medicinal or recreational use because so many states are in an economic slump and they see other states that have legalized cannabis and they see how much money is being generated in terms of tax revenues and the benefit is it's not like some other technology or, or widget or gadget we're introducing for the first time the demand exists immediately everywhere It's simply occurring on the illicit market. So when you look at states like New Jersey, that just recently voted to legalize cannabis for for recreational use, New Jersey is situated close to Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland. And when I was doing research for my book, I realized that about 20% of a state's recreational cannabis consumption, the revenue comes from out of state. So you're going to have... These governors and state officials from every state that borders New Jersey and they're going to have their residents driving to New Jersey spending their money there and then driving back home and I don't think uh, right. they're going to stand very long to, to lose that kind of tax revenue so as a result of the last year you know eighteen months ago i wouldn't have seen i wouldn't have been as positive assuming that so many states would legalize, but I think in the next year, I think we're going to see a lot more states legalize. And it doesn't necessarily need to come down to a vote since they have ways of doing that within the state to decide to legalize it. The key driving factor, more than, more than compassion, more than, um, more than anything, I think it comes down to dollars and cents. And it's very encouraging when you look at um, a place traditionally pretty conservative like the South and you have a state like Mississippi that, that voted for cannabis, I think 70% of the voters voted to, to have cannabis. So, you know, if, if it can happen in Mississippi, I think it can happen anywhere in, in, in the states.
6: So, um, what, uh, so you said you don't expect any federal action over the next couple of years. Did I get that correct?
7: I, I don't think
6: it's realistic
7: to anticipate complete federal legalization. No.
6: For at least a couple of years or perhaps even longer.
7: Correct. It's such a a massive undertaking, and um, I think it's easier and more realistic and much faster to really make progress state by state and within each state, and I mean by that transitioning
6: from um, medicinal to adult-use cannabis. I I think you you made a a really important point that I just want to go back and have you reemphasize, and that is that we're we're seeing the states, uh, based on the votes of the electorate, the electorate is saying they want this and that maybe the electorate may put the pressure, but it's, what does it take about two years to get through on a ballot initiative? So is the next big window 2024?
7: So I have to confess ignorance that I don't understand exactly how uh, laws are passed or legislation is created, but uh, I think if these States have the capacity and the interest to, to legalize cannabis without bringing it to the voters, I mean, we've had states, I think Illinois did it that way, Vermont did it that way. Um, I think you're going to see more and more states taking that avenue because it's it's a very rapid path to helping to relieve the economic struggles a lot of these states are facing now, especially after COVID.
6: When I heard about your book, I was fascinated because uh, cultivation is obviously the source of supply, and... um, uh, we we know that there are certain states around the country who've opened up with uh, an insufficient amount of, of cultivation. So what was the genesis for writing your book? So this was based on
7: my experience uh, consulting with startup groups over the last four years. And what I found is that when uh, potential clients called me to come have a look at their production site to address a certain problem that they're having, it was very seldom a technical issue like – the wrong kind of fertilizer or the wrong kind of grow light. Um, almost you know, nine out of ten times it came down to very basic business principles that weren't addressed prior to even planting any seeds at all. So anyone that's familiar with cannabis growing at all knows that there's, there's dozens of printed grow books and a plethora of growing information and in websites online if you want to know how to grow cannabis. What I found that there was absolutely nothing of was a business book that could speak to people from any industry and really lay down a clear path for planning and launching commercial cannabis cultivation business. And so that's what I set out to do. This book was basically um, um, provide um, a step-by-step method for researching, planning, raising funds, designing, launching, and expanding a successful uh, commercial cultivation business with the goal of coming to market as quickly as possible.
6: Do you prefer in your book uh, growing inside or outside?
7: So I'm preferable to outdoor growing, uh, and by outdoor I mean greenhouse growing. So for a couple of reasons, one is it's my my background and my training is in traditional horticulture. So even prior to touching cannabis on a commercial scale, I was growing ornamental crops and edible crops in commercial greenhouses across the U.S. So that's really where Mm -hmm. I'm coming from. That's my training. That's what I know best. But as we look ahead into the future, um, cultivation businesses need to anticipate that they'll come under increasing pressure to minimize their carbon footprint. So, uh, for any listeners that aren't familiar with how cannabis is grown indoors, uh, they use a lot of grow lights, which generate a lot of heat, and they require industrial strength dehumidifiers in uh, uh, HVAC units in order to evacuate that heat. So, not only do the lights consume a lot of electricity, but the equipment to dehumidify the area and cool the area uh, requires a lot of electricity as well, and it's simply not a very green method of cultivating plants. And if we look to every other commercially produced crop in the world, we as cannabis growers, we're the only ones that do it completely indoors. So it's simply, uh, it's not the most efficient way to grow, and it's certainly not the most environmentally friendly way to grow. So I much prefer to grow in greenhouses because from my perspective, it makes a lot more sense.
6: So just so our audience understands, define for them and for me what you mean by greenhouses.
7: Sure. So it's a, it's a controlled environment. Um, typically, um, it's a structure made out of uh, glass or plastic. And the most basic structures simply protect the crop from rain or inclement weather. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, the most sophisticated high-tech greenhouses can control lighting, temperature, humidity, Airflow carbon dioxide everything so there's a wide range of technology and depending on the crop that someone's growing or the region of the world They're in um, There's different recommendations
6: for different situations um, Thank you for that that was very helpful um, I I think of the greenhouse I used to have when I used to grow my own tomato plants and vegetables and flowers a, a plastic eight by eight by eight greenhouse and uh, I had a space heater in the wintertime to try and keep stuff from freezing. But uh, <laughs> they're much more sophisticated than that. But but the question that I would have is, uh, in order to meet an expanding, rapidly expanding consumer consumption of the product, are, are greenhouses going to have to get, if they're going to do that, going to get have to get much, much larger? And does the indoor growing that you just talked about with the lights and the air conditioning, and everything else, are those going to become less and less viable?
7: So um, so what is a large greenhouse is relative. If you look at a crop like hydroponic tomatoes, um, this is a very popular product. You can find it in every single grocery store in the country. But uh, every mm. year you've got companies that are building massive high-tech greenhouse facilities to 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 service that market. So know what is big is is four acres big or is 40 acres big um it's really all relative but generally speaking i see the industry moving in that direction so i think we'll see less and less indoor grow operations and more and more uh, greenhouse operations so is indoor growing going to remain viable Uh, likely because what indoor allows cultivators to do is control every element of the environment so they can nail to a, a, a specific degree the, the temperature, the humidity levels, the carbon dioxide levels, airflow, everything. I mean, the, the grower is God in that sense. And so that's it's the most expensive way to grow. So what they're producing really needs to, to command a high price point at retail. So when you look at places like California, when you go into uh, um, an adult use dispensary in California, you know, they've got dozens of varieties sitting behind a glass countercase, And so visual appeal actually plays a lot into the, the consumer's purchasing decision. And so in those instances, if you've got an adult use market and you're commanding premium prices for the product, then actually indoor growing can be justified in that scenario. But if you're growing mm-hmm. to produce oil for, for vape pens or for creams or tinctures or food, the consumer never really sees the, the flower. All they see is the end product that they purchase. So greenhouses really come in handy for high-volume, low-cost production for anything that isn't pure flower sales in a dispensary.
6: So if we, if we look at that, um, the, the idea that we're going to grow these various products, uh, I, want, I want to take you back to your master grower uh, title. Um, do you see any new strains coming on board in cannabis that are going to be uh, dramatically changing the uh, the desire of, of the consumers
7: if we look at the adult use market which is really the the fastest growing segment and the most lucrative for entrepreneurs what consumers are looking for are two things they're looking for a flower that offers um high thc and a unique mix of terpenes so those terpenes are what really gives cannabis its it's distinct uh, aroma and taste when it's consumed. And then the THC, mm-hmm. of course, is directly related to the high, the feeling that someone gets. So it's kind of the same mm-hmm. thing when you go out looking for maybe a craft beer, or you look for something maybe that has a good alcohol content and a really unique flavor. And so when we look mm-hmm. ahead to what will be the most popular varieties in the future, rather than kind of concentrate on specific names, what we want to look for is high THC, in a unique mix of terpenes with a smell or a taste that is rare or, or no one's growing yet, that's what people are going to gravitate towards.
6: I know this is probably going to sound crazy or silly to say it this way, but um, could, I, could I add to the THC in a cannabis uh, a chocolate flavor with a terpene? Could you
7: add uh, – uh, what do you mean by that?
6: I'm um, saying that, that the, the sense, in addition to the high from the THC, the flavor that you that – you flavor and or aroma that you get is, you know, I, I'm using the word – I'm using chocolate, but, you know, it could be chocolate, it could be lemon, lime, it could be apples, it could be pears, grapes. Uh, can, is that, can the terpenes be modified to create very specific flavors?
7: Uh, sure, so we could do that through breeding, through selective breeding. So, you know, if we seeded a thousand plants and we found five that smelled really strong like strawberry, then we kill all the other plants, we keep those five, and we breed those together. So we get a stronger and stronger and stronger strawberry smelling profile um, on the plant. And that's how we increase the amount of desirable terpenes in a variety.
6: Tell the audience where they can get your book and how they can follow you.
7: Absolutely. So uh, folks can reach me through my website at douglascultivation.com. And there you can sign up for my monthly newsletter or follow my social media or purchase the book.
6: Well, thank you for joining us today. It was a fascinating conversation.
7: My pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me
6: on. If you miss any of this terrific interview on growing cannabis, uh, please... Go to W420RadioNetwork.com. Go to the archive section and look for Ryan Douglas on this show. You'll be
0: entertained and educated. Thank you for taking part in America's Cannabis Conversation at America'sCannabisConversation.com. Each week, we provide our listeners information, education, and insight into the exploding medical and adult-use cannabis industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, local growers, detractors, and more. Learn how to build your own cannabis business, how to grow the product, what's legal, and where it's legal. Tune in each week to hear the latest industry news and updates from the American Cannabis Industry Association in Washington, tips on investing in cannabis, personal success stories and more. Join the conversation. To hear this show in its entirety or to hear any of our archive shows, log on to America's Cannabis dot com and tune in for the next installment of America's Cannabis Conversation. W420radionetwork.com.